The podcast of this local government meeting is brought to you by Michigan Radio. For more coverage of local government meetings and to find out how you can support this service, go to michiganradio.org. Thank you for coming to the May 2022 meeting of the Independent Community Police Oversight Commission. And before I call this to order, I thought it appropriate that we start this gathering with some words from Reverend Mashad Evans of Bethel Amy Church here in Ann Arbor. Good evening, everyone. Uh, certainly good to be here, to be among uh, friends on this uh, beautiful afternoon, this beautiful spring afternoon. While I'm glad to be here, I do so with uh, certain heaviness. I'm sure as many of you have seen um, on the news about yet another uh, attack, shooting in Texas, claimed the lives of 14 elementary school students. And it is uh, almost numbing at this point in time as far as the, the trauma that we experience collectively. Um, and just seems as if you know, evil and terrorism has been unleashed in our communities in so many ways. And just last week, I was at a vigil uh, for the 10 individuals who were killed in Buffalo, New York. And sometimes it's like, when is it going to stop? Because it really makes no sense whatsoever. Um, and there is no way in which we can legislate a better world. But I do believe by our coming together consistently, uh, not simply for oversight, but for, for community. Uh, to build community, and that's what this is. It is building community. It is this consistent effort to work against terrorism, against supremacy in all of its forms, against white supremacy, against all the ways in which all of us are complicit in some ways um, in these systems that help the world operate the way that it does. But I believe this is the disruptor. Uh, people coming together in groups, uh, people who are striving for justice and continually strive to fight for justice um, in any way that we see that, whether it's working uh, through commissions sponsored by City Hall or it's protesting, uh, using our voice in every way imaginable to bring about a difference. And so as we gather this evening, I'm going to invite us, please, to take a moment. Um, and in times like these, uh, this is what helps me. Uh, and it is my desire and my prayer and my hope that it would help you as well. Just for a moment, to, to close your eyes if you feel safe. To close your eyes for just a moment. And just to take a deep breath. To inhale. And to exhale. We've seen a lot. And take another deep breath to inhale and exhale. Because all that we have seen has been triggering and traumatizing. So take another breath and inhale and exhale. Because it's like times like these, we need to nourish and nurture our souls. Because the fight is before us and the work is hard and the battle is is real and we who believe in freedom in the words of sweet honey in the rock cannot rest until it comes 
And while we cannot rest, we must rejuvenate and take care of ourselves. And we do that in places like this community. And so while our eyes are still closed, that we could just pause for just a moment to remember and reflect on all of the lives that have been claimed senselessly in so many ways because of injustice, inequality, and all of the other isms of racism and sexism and classism. And together, if we can finally take an inhale and exhale. And if you would just allow me this privilege um, as we open our eyes, if you would repeat after me, we who believe in freedom, we who believe in freedom. cannot rest. We cannot rest, we cannot rest. We cannot rest. until it comes. Until it comes. Thank, you. Thank you so much. So let's get started. I'll call the May 2022 meeting of the, I beg your pardon, May 24th, 2022 meeting of the of Ann Arbor's Independent Community Police Oversight Commission to order. I will call the roll. Uh, Council Member Rumlawi? Here. Commissioner Cynthia Harrison? Here. Council Member Lynn Song? Here. Commissioner Stephanie Carter? Here. Commissioner Bonnie Billups? Here. Commissioner Mohammed Offman? Here. Commissioner Micaiah Ship? And we have several members who are ill and could not be with us today, including our Vice Chair Francis Tudor Hargraves, Jude Walton, Randy Milgram, and Joshua Meisler. Thank you. I'm Lisa Jackson. I am present. And I'm the chair of Ann Arbor's Independent Community Police Oversight Commission. I'd like to thank you all for joining us out here today. Um, it's so important to, for us to take our meetings to places where our community comes together, and even more wonderful when we're blessed with great weather like today. If you'd like for our commission or any of our commissioners to come to a gathering that you're hosting, we would be happy to join you wherever, whenever. Almost a year ago today, our commission held its monthly meeting at Liberty Plaza in the wake of the conviction of Derek Chauvin for murdering George Floyd. And I shared with you all this James Baldwin quote a year ago. Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. On that day, I shared Baldwin's words as a testament of the courage that we need to create meaningful change. Today, I'd like for you all to hear them as a reminder of just how much that courage has managed to meaningfully change in the last year. Tomorrow will mark two years since George Floyd was killed. And words cannot describe just how much that loss means. Just as they can't fully capture what the loss of anyone at the hands of violence means. But two years after we marched for justice for Floyd, we find ourselves face facing a future in which real change may finally occur. Tomorrow, President Biden is expected to sign an executive order to create national standards for policing and to create a system for tracking officer misconduct so that officers who are punished for misconduct can be documented no matter where they move or to what department they transfer. While we still have so far to go, this marks an important moment in which change is finally being accepted by the system. But Ann Arbor has been aware of the, the need for change since long before George Floyd was killed. 
The reason our commission exists, the reason why I'm able to stand before you here today is because of Oral Rosser and what happened after she was killed by an Ann Arbor Police Department officer. Our community came together. The community began to advocate for change and it's because of you that the task force was created and eventually our commission. That's why I want to reinforce that it's your work that has led us to this point. Communities matter more than commissions. Partnerships matter more than politicians. So I'd like to thank Lori Saginaw and all other members of the task force that paved the way for our existence. I'd like to thank our partners at the Human Rights Commission, several of whom are here today, Aisha Ghazi, Keita Cowan, who have been collaborating with us on traffic transparency for the city of Ann Arbor. I'd like to thank the Transportation Commission, who has also collaborated with us on that effort. I'd like to thank the Coalition for Re-Envisioning Our Safety, a grassroots group in our community that has really pushed the envelope in terms of thinking about unarmed response and making it a reality in Ann Arbor that we hope will soon come to fruition. I'd like to thank the Southeast Michigan Criminal Justice Policy Research Group at Eastern Michigan University and specifically Dr. Kevin Karpiak who is partnering with us on analyzing data, um, analyzing traffic stop data from the city of Ann Arbor and we hope to produce a report this fall that will be similar to what Michigan State Police have produced in partnership with Michigan State University. Um, I'd like to thank the Washtenaw Equity Partnerships and everyone who participates in that group as well. I'd like to thank City Council and the Mayor who are helping us move the city in the right direction because their help has been invaluable to us in getting thus far. So before we get on with the rest of our meeting, I'd like to leave you with another quote important to me and one that I hope can guide us through the next year. If you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. Thank you. So we have, is there a motion to approve our agenda? So move. Is there a second? I second. All in favor? Aye. Any opposed? Thank you. And so what we have on our agenda today is a public forum. So we'd like to hear from you. We'd like to invite anybody who's so moved to talk about oversight, to talk about policing, to talk about public safety, to talk about what you're interested in seeing, to talk about unarmed response, to talk about anything that you feel moved to talk about. One of the things that we've been really happy about in the last year is looking at um, the conversation around having an unarmed response plan in the city of Ann Arbor. This would not replace the police, but would rather be um, a yes and. Having an unarmed response team in the city of Ann Arbor means that there are instances where people might be better served by having um, an unarmed person respond to their needs. If there were a young person who had been over drinking, for example, but was too scared to call 911, they might be able to call for an unarmed response that would be able to return them to their parents or to their home without any law enforcement involvement, for example. 
Um, I believe it was December of 2020 when the mayor and council member Song talked with Paul Fleming of the School of Public Health and myself about what that might look like. And I know the mayor did more research. And then you guys, city council proposed and passed a resolution in April of 2021 um, that directed the city administrator to look at the feasibility of an unarmed response plan. We've had some change in leadership several times since then, um, but we now have Milton Dahoney and his staff and um, a report was produced and we continue to explore what an unarmed response might be. The city has hired a consultant to do outreach. And so what we expect is that everybody in this community should expect to be contacted about what they'd like to see in terms of an unarmed response plan, how they'd like that to look, what, how, what kinds of services they'd like to receive. And after that process, we expect the city will um, put out a request for proposals and look for a group or groups that could run such an unarmed response plan. It could be a single group or it could be a combination of already existing community partners who come together to do that. But we think that that's critical for the city of Ann Arbor because we have talked to um, many people who are interested in having alternatives to police when they're in trouble. That could certainly mean people who um, uh, have a mental health issue and who would like to have um, a response, an emergency response, but not necessarily that from the police who, albeit, you know, do their best, are not trained in, in mental health um, care at all. One of the questions that's come up this year a lot is, why would you want to have a separate number? Having a separate number could be confusing. There's so many numbers to learn. And we think it is critical that if an unarmed response plan has a separate number, if you call that number, you know you will not get law enforcement. If you want law enforcement, call 911. But if you don't, if you want a public safety response that does not involve law enforcement, you could call a separate number. Um, we are very fortunate that um, our city administrator, Milton Dahoney, um, got that memo. He has seen that work in other cities, and he emphasized that in February in a Zoom meeting where he said very clearly, um, that we needed to have a separate number. So um, we're hoping that that comes to fruition and we hope that that, um, we suspect it will not be confusing for the community. We've seen lots of community numbers and those where they, uh, the numbers lead to responsive programs get used and people know those numbers and they use those numbers. Um, and so we are hoping that that comes to fruition and that we see the beginning of that in the fall of this year and that um, by next year we're well on our way to developing such a response in the city. I've seen several other of our community partners arrive since I started talking, including Leslie Stambaugh, who's the chair of the Human Rights Commission, thank you for coming, and Janet Haynes, who was also one of whom I consider our ancestors um, as part of the original task force that did the work to justify to the city that an unarmed response program, um, that a community police, community police oversight commission would be necessary. Uh, my name is Lynn Drickmer, and I have a couple of questions for the commission. One is simply clarification, that calling 911 would not necessarily mean you would get an armed response, that there could be a triage by which that call 
could be transferred to an unarmed response. Um, and then secondly, I really would like to know the most effective way for members of the community, for members of the community to be involved, contribute toward, have a voice besides the um, immediate surveys and group gatherings that will be put together in seeing that we get the kind of unarmed response that Ann Arbor needs and deserves. Thank you for your question. Um, although no unarmed response plan has been developed at this time, the um, initial thinking is that absolutely. What we've seen in other municipalities is that when unarmed response programs exist, um, they do take calls from 911 when um, dispatchers or even police themselves say, hey, this is not a thing that we think we actually need to handle. Can we give this to unarmed response? That that happens pretty seamlessly, and that's the expectation here. Um, uh, there's a group called Public Health Awakened. Um, there's a Michigan branch, and they did a um, seminar last summer where they had lots of people from other cities come and talk about unarmed response and how it worked in their communities. And one of the things they said overwhelmingly was do it. Um, but the other thing they said that was striking is that there has been no police department that has regretted this. That what they see is that there are calls that can be handled by others that really free them up to do what they came into the job expecting to do. And so we think this is a great both and situation. We expect that an unarmed response program would take calls transferred from 911 um, when dispatchers or even, we, we have talked to police certainly, and they give us example after example after example of where they feel like they don't need to be involved in a, in a particular call. But there isn't anyone else to call. And so that's the problem. Lots of times there are statistics and people cite that people in the most underserved communities call the police the most and, and, and want the police presence the most. That is so often correlated with a lack of any other basic service. And when you deliver services to those communities, their reliance on police dramatically decreases. And so while an unarmed response is certainly not enough, we need more and more social services for people in this community. Um, we do expect that it can reduce reliance on police for calls for which they are, are not trained and calls that they would prefer not to handle as well. So thank you for your question. Madam Absolutely. This one instead of this one? I don't know. Uh, thank you. I just want to echo what our chairperson has said. And I also thank you for that question. Um, or that comment about how what maybe is an armed response, turn, it, it turns out to be an unarmed response need. But also, this is the reason this is going to take us some time and some work, because there are a lot of those kind of situations that will probably come up. And also the reverse, when you think it's an unarmed issue and, it, and, it, and things go bad. And, and then you need, you need more of a response. So these are things we've got to work through. We do want the community's input, but there's a, it's, it's not just as simple as, as putting together a group. So thank you. Okay, I will do as I'm told. Um, I am Councilmember Lynn Song. I, you know, the only thing I wanted to say tonight was how, um, in the wake of the Brooklyn massacre, and I, I 
call it a massacre, how the um, we're revisiting what white supremacy, how it takes its toll on our country as domestic terrorism. So I've been following what our elected leaders have been doing, and I saw that on the 19th, the House Congress had passed legislation on the Domestic Tra Terrorism Prevention Act. It's going to the Senate. Hopefully, it'll be up to vote next week. So I encourage everyone to contact your reps um, and see, see if this can get done. In the wake of anti-Asian hate last year, uh, Congress moved really quickly to speak to uh, how to put more resources around reporting hate crimes, encouraging folks to report hate crimes, um, you know, and honestly trying to figure out how to educate law enforcement and understanding how complex the Asian American history uh, and civil rights uh, experience has been and, um, and how it is also connected to white supremacy in the wake of the Atlanta shootings. We can name so many cities here who, that have suffered from white supremacy from Charlottesville, Atlanta, Brooklyn, another shooting today. I think it's time that we can you know, demand more from our local and our federal officials. So please reach out to the folks who are already there and empowered and who can do something. And I, my hope is that we can work as quickly as we did in response to anti-Asian hate as you know, what's happening here in the aftermath of Brooklyn. I was thinking about actually the second part of your question was what can you do as opposed to just showing up to commission meetings. Um, one of the things you can do is stay in touch with your city council. Stay in touch with your state reps as well. We have seen some movement at um, the state level in terms of thinking about funding for alternative responses to policing. And that's important. And it's important to understand um, that there's bipartisan support from that. It's important for people to hear from their constituents about that. Um, City Council welcomes your emails. I think, you know, working locally is really important, and we get to move the needle here. There is a degree to which um, Ann Arbor should not be following other cities. We have the ability to be leaders in Michigan. I think we see ourselves in that way in many, in many ways, and we can certainly be leaders in this way as well. But I think reaching out to, to those people and, and holding them accountable and letting them know your expectations is really important. Um, you know, that, that often happens when we galvanize around a single issue, but then council doesn't hear from people for a while. But I think when you have questions, when you have concerns, when there are things that happen that you want to see, reaching out to council is important. I get emails all the time um, from people who think, oh, or, or will share an experience with me about, oh, this is why an unarmed response would be helpful. Um, and so... I, I did a Zoom with a, a woman in Ann Arbor who identified herself as a white upper middle class mom who has a child with, um, who is neuroatypical and had a hard time um, getting him to a doctor's appointment and he was a little bit out of control and she wondered whom she might call to get help. Her child is large, she is not, um, and she really worried about whom to call. And she wanted to call the police for help, and she stopped. And she thought, and, and she conveyed this to me, and she gave my per her permission to tell the story, that if she were a wealthy white woman in Ann Arbor, 
worrying about calling the police, what might other people worry about who have less privilege than she? Um, and so I think this is an issue that crosses ethnicity and crosses socioeconomic status. Lots of people are concerned with their interactions with the police. It does not mean that we don't see the police as helpful, but I think um, the police most of them enrolled in academies and, and got training to do a very specific job fighting crime. And I think sometimes doing these other jobs is really hard for them. And when we've talked to police, they've talked about the fact that they feel ill-equipped to deal with some social and behavioral issues. Um, and so staying in touch um, with your city council, with your state reps, as you encounter situations that are concerning to you or where you have questions um, is, is certainly a very powerful thing to do. Yeah, and so if I could add to that, my name is Bonnie Billups. Uh, so I think the other part of this is that your role is to investigate as much as possible what this whole thing means of unarmed response so that you can give real information to your neighbors who might be unknowingly believing in falsities about what unarmed response is about. So uh, it's meeting and talking to city council people, but we as people in the community can uh, be ambassadors for this cause by letting your neighbors know and discussing openly with it so that we can get rid of some of this fear. You know, fear is based in, you know, unreal things that, things that are false that appear real. And you have that, of course, in the news cycle, but you have that in the way people talk with each other. And you have that also in the fact that, uh, you know, people thinking that the, the process of what people have put this in as defunding police is about taking police officers off the street, not allowing them to do their jobs. This is really about assisting them to do their jobs better and to really better serve and protect our communities. So if you're a part of that discussion with your neighbors, that helps to bring a groundswell that stops some of this misinformation, so. Hey, all right. Hi, everyone. My name is Eric Winiga. I'm here with I'm here with my fiance Maddie, and I have to apologize if this is off topic, um, uh, if only because it it pales in comparison in terms of scope and scale to the issues that we're talking about. But um, in early March, we were out of town, and when we were when we were gone. Um, one or more people broke into our house and burgled it and then set it on fire and fled in my car. And um, that was less than a mile that way. Um, and then they were caught a couple of days later in Pittsfield. And we thought that that was probably going to be the start to like a healing process or getting our lives back on track. Anyway, against our protests, um, one guy was ex expedited elsewhere, but the other person was released from prison only to go on to commit um, more violent crimes, a, a break-in down the road from us, an assault with an ax. And um, 
anyway, I guess we're going on three months uh, since this occurred. Um, the last time we heard from the detective who was running the case was a phone call to Maddie to yell at her for asking too many questions. Um, we haven't heard from anyone in the police department in uh, probably going on a month now. Um, communication with the city council has dried up. Um, and so we just wanted to come here and see if we could open up a, a, a discourse. Um, and again, I, I do have to apologize because I, this type of thing doesn't affect people as broadly and as systematically as the, the topics we're talking about earlier, but um, it will happen again in Ann Arbor if things don't change meaningfully. So um, I'm happy to talk offline with you. Thank you so much for sharing your story. And first of all, um, we are certainly sorry that that happened to you. I think when somebody breaks into your house, I mean, it feels awful. And sure, it does not compare to somebody getting killed in San Antonio or a Buffalo, but it still feels really bad. And it still feels personal. And it feels somebody was in your space. And it feels awful. And um, and so we are sorry that that happened. But we're also happy that you came and um, shared that story with us. Um, sometimes we have a representative. We don't have Chief Cox with us. But certainly. Um, I hope that you'll be in touch and we can refer you to people who will probably be responsive. But um, you do have um, uh, several city council people sitting here who are probably also feeling the very same way that I'm feeling. We'll probably encourage people to reach out to you um, more frequently and meaningfully. So um, I think it's important to share those kinds of stories as well. They all, we're talking about public safety. This is absolutely related to what we're talking about. Um, certainly. Prosecutors make decisions about how people are charged and whether people are held. Um, and that's certainly outside of what we do. But we are interested in all the kinds of public safety um, issues that happen to people in this community. So thank you, actually. Thank you. Uh, I echo that. I'm so sorry that that happened to you. That must be a horrible thing. But what I wanted to um, to to speak to as a former prosecutor, there's a lot going on now, a lot of talk about what there's, I don't even know there's so many names for it, soft on crime or uh, whatever. But I think it's important that we understand this move away from cash bond. Um, when someone is charged with a crime, they are presumed innocent. And what's happened in our system is that they get locked up, and those who have the money can post bond and get out. And people without resources many times languish in jail before they've ever had a chance for a trial. They've lost their jobs. They may lose their leases, and so forth and so on. So when we hear a lot of this talk about judges being soft on crime and whatever, I think we need to keep in mind that there's a reason that there has been some activism around different types of, of bonds. And if someone doesn't, have, if, if someone has a, a previous criminal record and then commits a crime, 
they ought to be held. And that's something that, of course, the judges ought to be aware of. But to keep someone confined before they've had a chance for a trial, because they don't have the funds to, to put up a cash bail, is something that I think should and is being considered. I, I'll just say that I'm familiar. I'm, I'm aware of what happened. Uh, I, I represent Ward 2. I, I believe you're renting a home in Ward 2. It's a, it's a small neighborhood where it got around. Um, and I know neighbors are really trying to support you as, as this process continues. I've been in touch with your Ward 3 reps, or this happened, your, your Ward 3, right? And I know that you've had community meetings about this, and neighbors have been trying to advocate for you as well. So I've, I've asked Chief Cox for updates, and they said it's, the investigation is ongoing, but I can certainly ask again and press, and then I'll work with your, your Ward 3 reps. Hello, my name is Teacher Barton, and I currently live in Ward 4. I'm a tax-paying property owner, native son of Ann Arbor. I'm an Eagle Scout, retired Peace Corps volunteer, former volunteer instructor for the Red Cross, a former big in the Big Brothers Big Sisters program, an active member in Wildlife Rescue, a youth mentor, and a volunteer for various other community and nonprofit organizations. I believe the policies and procedures of law enforcement are there to keep officers as well as citizens safe. I believe with reasonable exceptions, the policies of law enforcement are most beneficial to society if they are publicly accessible. Over a year ago, I FOIA'd my city, county, and state law enforcement departments for the public release of their policies and procedures with reasonable exceptions. I need to thank the Michigan State Police for posting around 90% of their policies online. They are also continuing to review, update, and make those policies easier for citizens to assess or access. Sorry. My FOIA request to the Ann Arbor Police Department was denied. My appeal to the city of Ann Arbor highlighted 42 policies I believe benefited society when they were publicly accessible. The city of Ann Arbor determined 39 of those 42 policies listed should be publicly accessible. For the last year, I've been trying to get the, the Ann Arbor Police Department to post those 39 policies on their website for publicly accessible viewing. I've been told, I've been told the Ann Arbor Police Department needs to re-review again these public policies before they can post them on for publicly accessible viewing. Here's my question. If the Michigan State Police are able to review and update their policies while at the same time their current policies are accessible on their website, why can't the Ann Arbor Police Department do the same? I think ignoring problems or the citizens who bring attention to the problems is not a viable solution and only creates more issues. I want to thank Councilmember Ali Ramwali, who is the City Council liaison to this commission. His willingness to meet and speak honestly with citizens is how social issues and citizens' concerns get addressed and resolved. Thank you for your time. Thank you. This is an excellent example of where a citizen coming forward prior to this um, led us to do some work on our own. And we found that there are 111 um, and our police department policies posted online. What we did not know is how many hundreds more were not posted online. And so our commission has had some conversations with the Ann Arbor Police Department um, deputy chiefs and chief and city administrator about that. And we are encouraging them to work diligently about putting more and more of those policies online until they get to that 90% range. 
ish. Now, there are some policies that get taken down and put back up as they get revised. But what we have learned since you're coming forward the first place, um, the first time, is that there are several hundred that are not online. And that is actually a problem for us. It was not something of which we were aware, actually, until you came forward. It led us to dig deeper. And so we appreciate that um, you're bringing that to our attention. And it is something on which we are working. It's something for which we are advocating. It is something for which we are pushing. There were no policies online until we demanded them. And now there are, but there's not enough. Um, and so the Ann Arbor Police Department has a long way to go in that. I do not speak for the Ann Arbor Police Department ever. They would probably be really unhappy if I did. But um, I will say that probably it is not at the highest, um, it is not at the top of their priority list of things to work on. But what we have emphasized to them is that it is nonetheless important and that it is a goal that can be attained if they begin to work on it and work on it diligently and regularly. Um, and so um, I know you have, we have been in touch and communicated before, as you have with um, the Human Rights Commission. And um, so you certainly know how to reach us, and we will keep you posted. Um, I am checking for those, but I, I think we're going to have to have a little more conversation and nudging. Um, but we expect to be effective in that way. Um, because transparency is very important, and we have a city administrator now who um, sees that as a priority and helps to communicate that to the police department, maybe in ways that um, our commission cannot. So thank you. Are there any of our HRC partners who would like to, to talk about any of the work that they're doing? Certainly, we've done quite a bit of work together. I feel like I see a conversation happening. Yes, you can. You don't have to get up so that he doesn't have to be on TV. Hi, everyone. So um, HRC has been busy with a few things, one of them specifically the traffic transparency resolution. And it was a resolution in support of ICPOC's resolution saying that they would like AAPD to make traffic um, data accessible, right? Especially in regards to demographics. Do you want to give more updates on other things that we're working on? No, I think that this Yeah, for this forum, I think that, yeah. Um, I do have some questions. I was wondering, Lisa, if you could talk about what proportion of current calls that come into dispatch um, are calls that would probably qualify for unarmed crisis response. You know, are calls that are people who are in social or economic or mental health crisis. You may not know that yet. I remember hearing that there's a huge proportion of them. And I heard, but maybe, you know, that's something that you guys are still looking into. Yeah, yep, no problem. Um, so actually, I don't think the Ann Arbor Police Department knows what proportion of calls those are because of the way that they've been keeping um, track of calls. And so unfortunately, we got to a point where I had to FOIA the data. So I have the data for all calls for 2020 and 2021. 
Um, but they're not necessarily broken down in that way. One of the things that we hope going forward is that there will be an impetus to start keeping track of how many of those calls there are, such that we could then determine how many calls might be um, diverted elsewhere. Um, transparency um, in the NR Police Department um, has not been a high priority until recently. Um, and data transparency has been particularly difficult. Um, I'm not going to ascribe any reasons to why that might be, but um, we know that that's been a problem. Um, what um, HRC Commissioner Ghazi was talking about is our push to make traffic, trans traffic stop data transparent in the city of Ann Arbor. So after um, quite a bit of pushing and um, we got our hands on traffic stop data from 2017, 2018, and 2019, and 2020. And Eastern Michigan's SMART group is analyzing that data, and we're going to look at whether there are disparities in stops for young people, old people, people of any particular ethnicity. Are there some groups of people who seem to get warnings more than people who get searched? Um, things like that. And so that's something we're looking into. What we want, though, is for traffic stop data to be transparent and to be released every year. We do not want to have to move a mountain every year to find out who gets stopped in Ann Arbor. And because of the way those data are collected at the scene in a little handheld device, that is something on which data already exists. It's not very complicated. It's not very hard. It's an Excel file. Um, it can be released very easily every six months, every four months, every year. And so we have asked City Council, the Transportation Commission has asked City Council, and the Human Rights Commission has asked City Council, and um, the City Attorney's Office is um, hopefully working on um, a, a policy that will allow that data to be public all the time. My argument is that those data probably belong more to the people who are stopped than to the Ann Arbor Police Department. And that we should all see that. There are no, there's no personally identifying information that was released. Nobody's name, address, make, model, car, license plate number. Just stops where they happened um, and demographics about the person. And we think that level of transparency is the very least that the Ann Arbor Police Department can do. And we are very happy the Human Rights Commission and Transportation Commissions um, joined us in that effort. Transportation felt like it was a traffic safety issue. We should know that. And only after we know that can we look and see whether that kind of policing is what this community expects. And so this fall, um, we'll be having lots of community meetings um, as um, the data begin to be finalized, as those analyses get finalized. Um, and we'll be excited to talk to the community about that in a variety of different ways. We'll certainly write a report because lots of us are academics and that's what we do. But we're also interested in having lots of community meetings where we talk about what we find and find out whether that's acceptable or not. For all we know, it may be exactly what everyone wants to see, but maybe not. And we don't know that yet. Um, We'll be looking at the data from 2020 um, separately because that was the first year of COVID and traffic stops were very different then, um, particularly before vaccines were available. And so um, we'll, we'll analyze that data, but it will be separated out because certainly it's just a year full of outliers. But, um, you know, we think that kind of transparency is what this community deserves. Other communities do that regularly. Um, nothing really scary has happened because people have had access to traffic stop data. There are no revolutions happening, no uprisings, no revolts, um, because people were able to see who got stopped in their communities. 
So um, we certainly thank the HRC. Um, but there, but but that is about the only kind of data that the Ann Arbor Police Department has that's in any kind of shape to be analyzed, and what we want. And um, our commission wrote letters of support to Debbie Sabinow and Senator Gary Peters and um, Senator Stabenow and um, Representative Debbie Dingell in support of Ann Arbor's Police Department getting a grant to upgrade their data collection system. Um, such that they could be a bit more transparent. So we hope that they will get funding to do that and that with that funding comes um, actionable data that they will be sharing with our commission and the public. Um, we are very clear in our letter of support that um, we certainly hope they can collect data, but more importantly, we want them to share it. So thank you for asking. Are there other questions, comments, thoughts? <coughs> Hello, my name is Keita Cowan, and I'm on the Human Rights Commission. Uh, and I had a question, which is, uh, has everyone else noticed that when we are given information, it occurs after a murder? Yet the policies and procedures that existed in Grand Rapids, that existed in Minneapolis, uh, have existed for a while. They didn't just get put into place. What can we do to discover whether our policies and procedures um, can be modified so that that doesn't happen. I mean, can we compare and contrast and take more of an active role? That's what I was curious about. <laughs> I mean, there are dash cams, body cams, every bit of info that we can get, I think, is helpful in preventing, right, tragedies, because that's what we want, that's what the police want. We want to prevent, not respond to. Obviously, that's the million-dollar question, right? I'm a researcher, so and you guys know that, so I bore you probably with peer-reviewed studies. But there are several that show that body cams do nothing to change police behavior. All they do is document it. And they may not even document it if it isn't reviewed, if it isn't stored. And so policies around how often body cam footage gets randomly reviewed, how policies around how long it's stored are critical. It seems like that's in the weeds, but if we get a complaint about an officer's behavior that comes in six months later and body cam or dash cam footage was destroyed a week before, that's problematic. And so those kinds of policies that Mr. Barton was talking about and that we've talked about and that we've talked about in terms of transparency actually become critically important. And so one of the things that our commission does is get down in the weeds, and we talk about lots of things that seem terribly boring, but end up being really important if you're the one in trouble. There are lots of policies um, that would promote good conduct. And so sometimes it's not the policies. Um, but I think the policies are critically important. 
Um, one of the most painful things about Oral Rosser's death is that um, Michael Brown had been killed just a few weeks before. And there were a group of concerned citizens who went to the Ann Arbor Police Department, the person who was chief at that time, and expressed their concern and wanted to make sure that such a thing would never happen in Ann Arbor. And yet, almost eight weeks exactly to the day that Michael Brown was killed, Ora Rosser was killed. And so I am not throwing my hands up in despair by any means. But what I'm saying is it takes hard work and it takes sustained work and it takes consistent work and it takes consistent work from a lot of people, from people who don't sit on commissions, from people who are just concerned about what happens in their community and making sure that every single person in their community is safe and that everybody has the same expectation of safety. Whether you're young or old, whether you are black or Asian, um, we should all expect to be treated the same in a traffic stop. We should expect to be treated the same um, by police when they respond to a call, when we are out in a park exercising, for example. Um, and so training is a piece of that, but so are expectations. Expectations from the community about, about what behavior is acceptable. And that's really, really important. So we got a long way to go. We're committed to go getting there. I know you are going to help us as well. So we feel confident about that. I, I just thank you. I just wanted to say that I was reading today our state attorney general, Dana Nessel, has proposed a package that she believes will increase quality, accountability, and transparency in our state. And if it passes, which who knows? what will happen in the state legislature. But, you know, it, it appears as though she's trying to get some things that may respond to your concern. The, the things, the package requires implicit bias, bias de-escalation, and cultural awareness training. It requires the elimination of recruitment, of retirement benefits for officers charged with felonies related to misconduct. That's interesting. Um, the creation of a statewide police misconduct registry, increased use of force reporting requirements, independent review of police killings, and empowering state officials to revoke individual officers' uh, law enforcement license. So there are people who are working to get some policies in place. Whether it's going to work or not, I don't know. You might want to contact Attorney General Nessel and let her know that you support what she's doing, and the, and the state legislators. Thank you. You know, you brought up um, de-escalation, and I think it's interesting that in our police department last summer took every officer through a de-escalation program. And I think that's really critically important, and I think it's useful. However, the de-escalation was how to de-escalate people with whom they come in contact. And what we have seen from traffic stops and other tragedies across the country is that officers need training on how to de-escalate themselves. And that is not something that Ann Arbor has engaged in. And Ann Arbor is one of the best trained police departments in the state of Michigan. So I sit on um, the state board, M. Coles, that does licensing for all police officers in the state of Michigan. And um, when we look at training, 
Ann Arbor is so well trained compared with so many agencies. And yet that's not something um, that they have yet. And I was going through a training with several police officers and we were looking at the stop, the traffic stop of Sandra Bland. And um, we could watch the officer get more and more and more upset as he was questioning her. She was pulled over for failing to use her turn signal. And um, he was getting more and more angry and more and more upset with her. And the officer in Ann Arbor paused the video and I asked him, what should she have done? What could she have done? She was eventually taken into jail and was found dead the next day. Um, and um, he said, absolutely nothing. There's nothing she could have done. And that is horrifying. That's horrifying. And so officers are human. They have bad days, but you know they carry lethal force with them. And so what we need is for them to learn to do de-escalation for themselves. We need certainly mental health programs. We need them to take advantage of the ones that exist. But we need them to learn the skills um, to de-escalate themselves. And that's critical as well. I think what you said about expectations a moment ago, sorry, Mr. step out of the sun, it, it really stuck with me because so often we have these conversations, we have them in the context of equality. Um, am I, as a black man, going to be treated the same as a white woman when I get pulled over by the police? Might he just let me go because I'm looking fine that day? Probably not. But when I sit and think about it, that feels like such a bare minimum standard, that that, that, that is what we are asking for, that, that, that that's what we think about. When I have an interaction with a police officer, I often feel like I don't have the luxury of expecting courtesy. And that is something I expect when I go anywhere as someone who pays taxes, who purchases goods and services. And so like if I go to a McDonald's, and the person behind the register is having a bad day, I don't expect them to berate me or cuss me out or interrogate me as if I've done something wrong just because it's taking me too long to pull out my change. And I think about that a lot too, not just in day-to-day -day encounters, but when we have more meaningful interactions with the police. And so when we're talking about their policies and their procedures and they are belligerent about, well, how could you, we're so busy, our work is so important that we don't have the time to and we can't even, but at the end of the day, the people who that affects is us, not them. And that it is so um, worthy of castigation that we even dare ask for to be able to see what the rules are so we might not break them is ridiculous. But it's even more concerning in instances where something awful has happened to us. Having your home broken into while you're gone, while you're, even if you're there, is like one of the most violating things that can happen to you. And that is, that, do, that the way you feel about that does not end just after it's happened, after the people have been arrested. Does, it, will it happen again? Might it happen to someone else I care about? You know, might that person come back? That someone might have questions about that, that, that they might be wondering about the investigation is normal and we should care about those people and express compassion and that someone who is just asking a question or who is answering a question about that isn't even expected to have that very minimum level of compassion necessary to understand that, you know, 
maybe if it's inconvenient to answer it again, or maybe if it's inconvenient they have to go other way to provide an answer, that maybe it's worth doing that is horrifying. Because we would expect better from anybody else. And the reason that we don't is because we feel so disempowered to say anything against them because they're the people with guns. Because they're the people who get a choice about whether or not to help us because they're the people who could end our lives. And so when I think about this, on one level it is very demoralizing, but on the other level, to ask for more, to not try to kind of talk around, talk around the problem, you know, unarmed response is a wonderful thing. Having more basic services is a wonderful thing. We need all of those things and still, at the end of the day, if the only thing the police are good at is solving crime, and we live in a low crime community, why is it that we can't expect them to, you know, exercise some basic human decency? And so, I, maybe this is a question, maybe this is a conversation, but I'm incredibly interested in what is it that we do at a policy level, at a cultural level, at whatever level to encourage the police to, you know, not be dicks. Thank you. You know, uh, when we look at um, complaints that are made about the police department, such a, a goodly percentage of them have to do with courtesy and the way that the police officer spoke with me. And there are studies that show how speaking to people makes a difference. Um, I mentioned there was a conversation about the police um, contract. And I said to some people who looked at me like I was from space, I said, we know a contract is an agreement between two parties. So we know what the police expect, in the, and it's in the contract. So much vacation time, so much pay, so forth. What do we get? And they said, oh, well, you know, their policies and so forth. I said, yeah, but it's not in the contract. And what would be wrong with our contract? And I know some people are probably saying, this lady is crazy. What would be wrong with our contract saying that we as the citizens of Ann Arbor expect honest, courteous uh, uh, policing in the city of Ann Arbor? And it's not in there. I just, I, I mean, I think you're right, and I think it's something that we can't uh, ignore. Hi everyone, my name is Makaya. I'm the youngest commissioner here. I wanted to introduce myself. Um, so I wanted to tell a little story that happened last week with my boyfriend and I. Um, we were in Virginia, and if you've ever seen his car, it's literally a camo Camaro. You can't miss it. Um, and we were driving on our way to church. So we were on our way to church, and there was an officer, you know, tucked off to the side waiting to pull someone over, obviously. Um, and we were, there were actually some family members driving right in front of us. And the, we were, we were, it's so funny, as we were driving by, we were like, they're going to pull us over. Not because we did anything wrong, but because of the car. So we're driving, and um, the family member drives in front of us, and then obviously they pull us over. Um, and as they pulled us over, him being a black man, me being a black woman, in a camo car that has tint on it, we were a little nervous, a little frustrated. Um, and they come to the window on both sides, on both sides, and they say, um, we're pulling you over because you don't have an inspection tag, which I guess isn't a thing here. 
it's not a thing here, but it's a thing there. Um, you don't have an inspection tag, so that's why we, we pulled you over, because our machine isn't working, and we looked, and you don't have one. But one of the family members that was driving right in front of us didn't have an inspection tag, but we got pulled over. And long story short, um, he was frustrated. My boyfriend was frustrated, and you can kind of tell a little bit, a little nervous, a little frustrated. And the officer at the end of it said, you know, don't believe what you see on TV. Not all cops are like that. So not, he didn't assume that we were frustrated or scared because of experience. He assumed that we were frustrated and scared because of what we see on TV. The funny thing is, is that we also see cops giving free backpacks to little kids and going to communities and playing with water guns. But that didn't inform how we reacted to them. We reacted to them like that because of experience. So it's things like that where you assume that I'm, I'm black, you can see it on my skin. It's not like you can, I have to tell you that I'm black for you to know that I'm black. That's why I'm nervous right now, because I don't know how this is gonna go down. So for you to tell me, don't believe what you see on TV, as if that's why I feel the way that I feel about this stop right now, is what, going back to what was already mentioned about how cops are communicating with us. So this is not gonna change overnight. Like, we're not gonna see a video on NBC of them freaking, you know, throwing water balloons at little kids and having a blast and be like, oh, cops are different. This is our experience. None of my experience with police in my life has been positive, ever. And I'm 19. Imagine people that are older. Imagine people that are younger. My experience has never been positive. So you telling me to not, not you know, fear you right now because you're different when you're not? It all comes down to communication. It all comes down to the institution. I'm not gonna you know, isolate you out and be like, oh, he's a good cop. This is an institutional thing. So when I see you, when you pull me over, I automatically have an idea of my head of how you're gonna look at me right now and how I need to approach the situation. Like I said during our last public forum, this is a conversation that mothers have with their kids, black mothers specifically have with their kids. My mom tells me every single day, Make sure you don't have the little air freshener on your thing so you don't get pulled over for no reason. Why is that a conversation that's had? Instead of reframing the way in which police are interacting with people. So, I mean, this is, this is something that I get passionate about a lot, but because it's experience, it's real life experience, and the stories, the newspapers, the, the news is not what's informing my experience. It's only confirming it. Thank you all for coming. Uh, my name is Muhammad Athman. I am the oldest member of this commission. <laughs> uh, without uh, giving my age, but you can tell. Um, uh, a couple of things uh, for the um, um, individuals who are being killed by police. There was a report in the Narber News, I think, on Sunday. And it shows that so far we have this year about 10 and they are projecting the number to be about 30. Um, hopefully it does not reach that point. But, you know, um, always statistics sometimes based on previous encounters and they project, you know, pair interactions, maybe the number is going to be 30. 
Um, that's that's one thing. And uh, part of that report also, the Attorney General of what she has in terms of uh, presenting that to legislation over here. Uh, hopefully, uh, that will reform some of these uh, issues. Um, the other thing was, I, I, uh, over a week ago, I had the chance to um, uh, talk to uh, the chief of police of uh, Dearborn, city of Dearborn. And um, uh, I think he lives in an arbor. I believe he watches our um, uh, meetings. And one of the questions he asked me about was, is there a transparency dashboard for the police department, Arbor Police Department. Um, and I was like dumbfounded. I said, I think not. We are trying to uh, really uh, get the information about traffic stops. And he said that uh, uh, Dearborn uh, Police Department, they have transparency dashboard. Actually, if you go over there and access that, it shows that uh, there are about up to uh, end of April of this year, for this year, they have over 7,000 citations. And they categorize every citation, the type, and the fine for that. Also, they have data on the gender, data on age, data on ethnicity. So this is something that we have been asking for. Uh, I probably would, would want to make an appointment to go over there and see what type of system they're using that they can really update their dashboard. And is this something that is available as software, a program that we can use? And if, if this is the case, why we should not have that? And if you look, if you look also at, at their um, uh, website, you will find that the policies are going to be uploaded to uh, the, the, to, to the website. So everyone who lives in the city of Dearborn will have access to these policies. And I think this is something that the least the community can ask for is the, the you know, department is, is the city, the department is part of the city. The city is being run by money that is being collected from taxpayers. So whatever they're doing is, is you know, you are supporting that. And at least you get something in return. We're not asking for the moon. What the policies are there, there. It, it, the policies, you know, it's something that if, why we need to hide something if, if the policies are clear? Just bring it out. Let people see it. If there are changes, make changes. If there are no changes needed, that's fine. But at least, at least to be transparent, uh, we would like to see all that in the open. So the citizens should not have any questions about, you know, you violated this. Well, I did not see it. I don't know what it is. Does it exist? Does not exist? You know, if, uh, an incident happened to me is somebody um, went and probably called that we have a little bit of the front, we have a little bit of probably a tree or so, and some uh, shops going out, and they're probably impeding on the sidewalk. And I had somebody from the city came and said, you know, this is the policy. I, I did not fight with that because I know I don't want somebody who is going to be walking in front of my house 
to be hit by a branch or you know have some injuries and i thanked the 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 person i said absolutely i'm i'm, I'm you have 72 hours to to finish that clean it and all these things and i did that the same day just to make it a little bit easier i was not aware of the policies if i think i was aware of the policies it would make things a little bit easier for us i think this this type of communication is really important for all of us to be on the same on the same path you know if it's like being in a boat and if 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 we if we all go to divide our niches and on the boat and you want to do whatever you want to do with your space what if you're going to be poking a hole in in your space just because it's yours well what are the consequences we all are going to sink because of one action so either we live together or we die or, or we die together there is no in between I think if, if we have a choice, we want to live together. And, and, and some kind of harmony, maybe we don't want to like each other, but at least we don't need to hate each other. Just live in, in a, peace way, a peaceful way and make sure that all the rights of individuals are being uh, preserved and your rights are, are your rights, but also with the rights come responsibilities. As individuals, we have responsibilities towards our fellow citizens. And, and this individualism, this, this kind of, of a notion that my way or the highway does not work and it should not work. We all have to be part of this uh, uh, net of things. We have different colors. And, and if, you look, if you look at this tree with, with, with the different colors, you enjoy it. If it were just one color, it just does not have the same impact. But we all, you know, we are all beautiful when we are all together. And also we are beautiful when we are individuals. But I think we are more beautiful when we are all together. Thank you. I, um, I wanted to follow up on a comment earlier, and I just wanted to, to note to this community that we now have um, Nicholas Camp, Dr. Camp, now is at the University of Michigan, and he has published um, several peer-reviewed papers on policing, and he comes from Stanford, and because there was a consent decree in Oakland, he was able to um, look at lots of body cam footage, and he did several studies, one of which shows that language shows racial disparities in officer respect. And so Commissioner Carter mentioned that um, the largest complaint that we get is the way that police officers talk to people in Ann Arbor. That is actually the largest complaint across the United States of America. That's the biggest complaint. And you might think, well, at least no one's dying. But actually, um, that leads to a degradation of um, uh, of, of, of relationships between the police and the community. Um, and um, it, it certainly causes harm to the person who's being spoken to, but it also changes the image that we have of the police and what we expect of them. And so a person earlier was talking about the bare minimum that we should expect. And I had a conversation with a person who was saying, you know, the police should at least be, it, it, we wouldn't be asking for too much if they were at least as polite as people who work at McDonald's. That's probably like the baseline that we should expect. They make a lot more money than that. Um, but I think that is a problem and has been a problem long since our tenure 
Um, there was a, a, a research done in the city on the climate in, I think, 2014 that said one of the things that they found the most was one of the complaints that people had was the way police officers talked to them. So eight years later, here we are. Um, Nick Camp also did another study where he had a subject pool, just regular participants from the community, just listen, no video, to officers' tone of voice. And you could tell not only whether the officer's tone of voice was condescending or not, but you could tell what group of people he was talking to when he was talking. There were several officers, sorry, but when they were talking, they were all male in this particular study. These things matter. Um, and so we do have a lot of work to do. We, we should be asking for more than the bare minimum. We should be asking that all policies are online. There's not a lot to ask. I think we, we understand where we're coming from, which is zero. But the fact that the police department does not necessarily see putting policies online as a priority or does not feel that it wants to expend its manpower in that way is actually not our problem. The, pol the policy should be online. And it's the police's discretion how they decide to get to do that. Whether they want to hire some grad students to help them do that, they could do that. There are lots of options that they have that get some interns to do it. But that does need to be done. And it does turn out to be really important in terms of your expectations of the community. They need to learn to de-escalate themselves. There needs to be an expectation of basic courtesy. Um, depending on to whom you talk, um, one of the things I hear about the Ann Arbor Police Department is that people who have warrants out for their arrest will come to Ann Arbor to get turned in because they will not be physically assaulted by the Ann Arbor Police Department. And so the Police Department is very professional in that respect. But the problems seem to lie with people who are not breaking the law when they are in a park asking about homeless people. We have found them, as we have watched body cam footage, to be extraordinarily disrespectful so much so that other people note, wow, that seemed really problematic, that interaction you had. Um, and, and so those are the kinds of things we're working on. Maybe that's a luxury to work on in Ann Arbor, but I don't think so, actually. I think that's kind of the basic thing that we should expect, is for officers to be courteous in their line of work. Um, I am a college professor. I don't get to yell at my students when I didn't get enough sleep the night before. I don't. I would get fired for doing that, no doubt. Um, and so I think we have to have some, maybe raise the expectation of what we're asking for in basic, just civil discourse between police department, the police department and our community. And I, I don't think that's too much to ask. I think it's just, um, we worry about these other things and so we don't think that's necessarily as important, but perhaps many of the other interactions start there. I think, um, you know, I was thinking about, as Makaya was talking about her interaction, when I first moved to Ann Arbor, I moved here from um, suburban Washington, D.C., and I lived on the north side of Ann Arbor, and the lab where I worked um, was right on South University. And I used to get a ticket, a speeding ticket, um, for going five miles over. I got one about twice a month. And you think, well, Lisa, stop speeding, right? Um, but I feel like five miles over is like within the, the standard range of error, for those of you doing statistics with me. Um, and I didn't think anything of it. I was just like, well, I shouldn't have been going five over. And people are astonished. They're like, you got a ticket for going five over? I'm like, no, no. I got like mm, 24 tickets my first year for going five over. And, you know, that, that cost me a significant... I was a broke grad student that 
single mom recently divorced, that it was that was kind of expensive for me. But you know, I kind of thought that was my fault. And it never occurred to me that it was really odd that I got tickets for going five over. <laughs> Literally five over. It wasn't like I was going 20 over. I'm in the flow of traffic and would get singled out and going you know, five miles over and get that ticket and pay that ticket. And, you know, I felt like I was really supporting the city of Ann Arbor with my little grad student stipend because um, of my poor driving habits. But um, so I think sometimes we think things are us. We think they're individual and really they're not. They're part of a bigger pattern. Um, and I, th I think we, it's, we all do better when we think about how all of the behaviors are impacting all of us. Um, thank you for, I hope people can hear this, Kent. Um, thanks for everyone coming out, sharing their stories, um, and expressing their thoughts. Um, I've been on city council for a little over three years now. I've gone through many different budget uh, approvals and cycles and discussions. I've been on this commission for several years. Um, I'm fortunate. And I've... Um, I'm in the middle of it all, you know, because when you're an elected official, you're, you become the man with quotes I use or the person. I'm not sure what, what is the most appropriate term to use there, but um, it's been really tough to be in the middle. That, that's that's um, the position I find myself in between the, the, you know, setting the policy, approving the budgets, listening to the community. Um, and working with our with the staff at the Ann Arbor Police Department, and um, there are a lot of issues here. And um, I will just say that, um, just reporting out here, I'm not taking any positions on on this. But from from my observations, uh, the morale in 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 the in the police force is low. Um, the they don't feel like they have the support of city council. They don't feel like they have the support of the, of the, the, um, the elected. Um, whether that's true or not is, is up for debate, but this is what, what I hear from, from the folks who we're, we're talking about. The, the amount of money that's being put towards training is inadequate. Um, I don't know what the latest figures are, but a couple years ago, we were only putting $75,000 a year in training, unless there were additional, and that's coming from the general fund. Uh, there are sometimes additional money that comes in the form of grants. Um, they've come to us and asked us to support them for um, software, um, for the tools that they need to collect the data and which is being asked. And we've, we have not funded it. Uh, at least two out of the three years that we've approved our budget, we have not given the police chief what he's asked for as a body, as a government. Uh, there's been a lot of public pressure to defund the police, to not increase the budget. And without really understanding what that means, there have been actions taken to not increase spending when it comes for some of the uh, needs that the department has. And um, we talk about the data. Well, 
it's there, as has been described, but it's not in the format in the way that it could be easily disseminated for the public. The, much of the, the system that the, the Ann Arbor Police Department uses is Clements. It's, it's based in Oakland County, and it's not necessarily recording all the information that this commission would like to see, or the Human Rights Commission, or the Transportation Commission. So it takes uh, a lot more time to get that information than, than would be if the adequate software was there to begin with. So policy makers and, and people who set the budget need to recognize the need to put forward the resources for the police department to respond to the demands that are reasonably being asked by the community in this commission. I have been on that board and I've seen their requests being denied. So um, hopefully that begins to change and we realize in order to get this information that the community demands and deserves that we give them the resources to do it with. But I don't think we've been doing an adequate, adequate job. And I understand the issues that some folks have described, and more than just some, but many, about the lack of um, politeness and, and, and the rude behavior of everything, the, the, the interaction. Um, I will just say that, that the police union is one of the strongest unions in the country. In a collective bargaining agreement, that thing is ironclad compared to many other contracts that I have, that I have seen. Um, this collective bargaining agreement gets renewed. This contract gets renewed every three years. We've made some progress on some of the issues that were, were brought up in, in 2019 and 2020. There is another contract that will begin in 2023. Um, and hopefully we can address these issues through that contract and through additional funding to provide the police chief and the force with the resources they need to get what this commission and the community deserve and have asked for. But to be honest with you, we're not giving them what they need. So until we do, I don't think it's going to come. Thank you. I think it is important to think about money. Um, and I think it's important to think about how money is spent. Um, there's. Um, we do have so many community partners and um, uh, okay um, and so um, one of them was able to reach out to the police chief and suggest some grants to um, help with uh, paying for software um, and it turns out at the, the US Department of Justice um, has lots of grants to fund exactly that. And so the police department put together what we think is a pretty competitive application and we supported that, as I mentioned earlier, and we certainly hope that, um, that they get funding for that. However, irrespective of software, the way 
Um, I used to joke all the time that other than traffic stop data, the police kept information on legal pads and drawers. And you know, we would joke about how terrible it was, but it's, it's not really that funny. Um, and there are some advantages to being opaque, right? So software system or no software system, whether you use Clemis or not, how you collect your own internal data is important. Um, and the Ann Arbor Police Department spends a lot of money on training every year. And so maybe there are some questions on how that's spent. I'm sure they always want more money and it's up to this community and this council to determine whether they need that or how they spend that. Um, we got a, a chance to look at the budget presentation that Chief Cox made to um, City Council on Valentine's Day, I think it was. Um, and we certainly had some questions about that. Um, we know you guys passed the budget, I believe, at the last council meeting. Um, and so we know that the police have the funds to do um, you know, what they need to do for the next upcoming year. Working on courtesy is free. And I am not suggesting by any stretch of the imagination that all police officers are rude all the time. I do not believe that. I've had many interactions with police officers, have had more than you can imagine eat in my kitchen. Do not find them to be rude or discourteous. But when that happens, it's certainly memorable. It's problematic. And it is all the more unreasonable when that person carries lethal force with them. Um, and so money is a thing and everybody wants more money, but there are some things that we could work on in this community irrespective of money. You know, part of our commission works, interacts with, all of us interact with police officers in different ways. And a subset of our group has been meeting regularly with police union members and talking about their concerns and, and understanding, and many of our, our commissioners work with police officers on a daily basis in their course of doing their work. And so it is not an us versus them mentality. Um, so please understand that we have lots of interactions with police officers on a regular basis in a formal manner, in an informal manner, in the course of, of other interactions we do and whether they are eating at our kitchen table. Um, but what we're talking about is complicated and it, and, it, and it is reasonable to talk about these things and it is reasonable to talk about upping the courtesy game in, in this police department. That is fair and reasonable and it's pretty inexpensive to do. I was unable to come to uh, last week's council meeting where we approved our general budget as well as the allocations for the, from the marijuana excise tax revenue. Um, my One of my children had COVID, so uh, please be careful. Uh, not of me, I'm okay, uh, just out there. Um, I just wanted to note in the budget that we actually did approve an increase for our police. It was in 2021, it's 30.7 million. Uh, this year, it's 31.4 million. Uh, considering that we did lose revenue during the pandemic um, and that some of that has been uh, helped with the federal ARPA funding, like every municipality with uh, trying to recover some of that revenue with those federal funds. I think it's a bit of a stretch to kind of characterize that we have not been supportive of, of the police in, a, in, our, in, our, in how we've budgeted 
for what they've requested. There are no budget amendments increasing that need. Um, and I'm really pleased to see that that budget was passed with more money, over half a million for deflection work. And that came from staff, staff request with support of community members, in addition to other poverty relief, uh, alleviation work and justice work. So that uh, although we're all here for, on police oversight, the communities that most impacted by this work and by police have, they experience all sorts of intersections of poverty, violence, trauma, racism. So the money that we budget towards this work for social service agencies through our own public works is, is committed to improving the, the well-being of, of our community members. Uh, and I think that's, that's something that all of our departments at the city can agree, agree on, that we are working to collectively for all Ann Arbor residents. And it isn't a fight between departments. We all benefit, every department benefits each other. So I just want to make that correction. It's important. Well, this year we definitely approved the budget that was requested by the police chief. Um, but in 2020, we did not. Um, we did not provide the software that they requested. We did not provide the funding for six additional officers. We reduced the number of sworn officers by six. And uh, so uh, this last budget, sure, but you know what? There's a 3% increase across the board for all your, your sworn police officers. So that budget, of course, is going to go up at least 3% based on the uh, contract uh, that, that calls for a 3% raise every year. Um, the marijuana excise tax, yes, we are defund, uh, funding deflection, de diversion, diversion, and expungement. Um, I brought an amendment up to help support some organizations local here, like Home of New Vision and Dawn Farms in a brighter way with that excise tax money. That didn't get support on council, it was a 5-5 vote. So, you know, that money instead has gone to OSI. I was disappointed. Uh, the Office of Sustainability and Innovation. $160,000 I asked the body to put, for, put towards restorative justice. The recidivism rate in Washtenaw County is higher than the state average. But we didn't take the $160,000 to help the people who are the most greatly affected by the war on drugs. We took it to fight climate change instead. So, um, you know, there, there, there are, there are going to be policy battles. There's going to be policy debates. But I've been around the sun a few times on budgets. And I can tell you it's a fact. We have not given the police department what they've asked for to get the information the community deserves and is wanted by the way of uh, equipment and by the way of sworn officers. I think we should note though that in 2020 when all other city employees had a pay freeze, police got a 2% increase in their salaries. Um, so I don't want to paint the picture that the police don't usually get what they need. They most often get what they ask for. Um, and I think maybe 
it's a little bit in the weeds, but maybe the question is, what do you do with the resources that you have? Maybe that's the real question. So, um, I have a question regarding the data collection that we have talked about in a number of forms, whether software or other forms, and its accessibility to the residents of Ann Arbor. When I asked about the ARPA funding request, which was a very significant one and was not rated highly in the surveys of citizen interest, I could not get assurances that it would be available on a dashboard. I was told that there would be reports that would be shared publicly. So one of my questions regarding the request to uh, the federal government for funding is whether that data will be available to the rest of the community. That's a great question, actually. And so um, I, I want to back up a little bit in terms of what you said. So the city um, had lots of information sessions and every entity that was asking for money from ARPA, which is um, sort of the, the American Rescue Plan Act money that municipalities of the state of Michigan, that cities in Michigan get, um, and how that should be allocated. And so every department that wanted money, that had a proposal, came forward and had some presentations. They were largely on Zoom. So that's not necessarily accessible to everyone. Um, and the police chief and um, uh, made a presentation about um, wanting money for um, uh, data collection. And as you so clearly pointed out, when people asked, but what will happen to the data? Will it be shared with the public? There was not a clear yes. And so it almost seems as if the police want to collect more data for the police's use. And that does not increase transparency. And so one of the things that we were very clear about in supporting their grant application to the US Department of Justice is that not only do we expect the data to be shared with this commission, but we expect that it be shared with the public. There is no reason that the city of Dearborn should have a dashboard that has so much information and the city of Ann Arbor cannot. The city of Chicago has a dashboard, and obviously we're not Chicago. We do not have the same um, troubles necessarily that Chicago has with policing. But on their dashboard, they list every single police officer, have a photo of every single police officer, and list every single complaint against that police officer. So there are a lot of ways to show data in a city. Um, but, but not showing the data should not be an option. And we should have gotten a clear yes. And so I kind of pushed back on the police chief as well and said in one of the Zoom meetings, hey, if you're not going to share that data with the public, why should that money that be spent on a dashboard? And so I think it is hard to say, you know, oh, we're not helping the police do their job, but the police are responsible to the public. And, and it is their job to be transparent. And I know that that can be a tough concept in some ways. And I know it can be very uncomfortable, but it's 2022. Our commission has existed for three years now, and we have been pushing for transparency the whole time. You do not hear me say much about accountability these days, because I, I feel like this is a place we, we have to go to. It, and and we, we are still pushing for transparency. We just want to see the data. 
Um, and, and I think it is critically important that when you come asking for money, that you, you talk about how you are going to use the money and not what you just you're going to do with it, but how that, that expenditure benefits the community. What will we learn from that? What will we get from that? And I think that's critically important. And so certainly that item might have been rated higher by the public had there been a clear, yes, we're going to make a dashboard. We're going to put out so much information. People will be able to see lots of things about the police department, but that was not the case. No one in the police department would commit to that. And they did not commit to that publicly and they did not commit to that privately. And so we had some grave reservations about supporting their grant request, particularly if it's just going to be for them to collect data to keep to themselves. Um, we decided as a collective to write the letter of support but several commissioners pointed out that transparency should be the reason why we supported that and we were very clear in that. That our expectation, our hope is that it would be funded if in fact it meant the police department would be transparent with that data and that it would be shared with the entire community, not just our commission. I will give you an example of how the city does transparency very, very well, and that is our water sewage department. If you, they, they issue water quality reports on a regular basis, these reports alert us to new contaminants, new approaches, it uh, lets you know there's, there's water quality data, should there be other water engineers in town who want to follow this to that, to that level of detail. But the effort is really meant uh, in the wake of the Gellman Plume to really not only uh, encourage an interest from the direct, from the actual institution that protects our waters directly from there, um, like to encourage trust in the work that the city's doing, to encourage curiosity, to encourage accountability. We do, we are able to do this work. So if we can provide police data as well as we provide you know, what the latest contaminants are in our water, and if we approach, you know, justice work as if it's environmental, you know, it's just like how we approach uh, and address environmental harm, we can do it. I want to address one thing about uh, how we actually fund social services in our community. Um, it's a joint effort with the county. There is a grant process that we've been working on for the past couple of years with the Office of Economic Development, you don't name agencies at the table to receive funding directly. We are not an appropriations uh, effort, uh, like a congressional appropriations, where we can do congressional appropriations directly to agencies. Agencies submit grant requests. Those are reviewed by community members. Uh, there's been a review for the past couple of months. There are processes for this because there's oversight over public money. It is not the same as private money that's raised by nonprofit board members. Uh, so should you all feel strongly about the efforts of Home New Vision and Don Farms, fantastic. There are opportunities to, to support that work in community. Uh, and there actually are, there have been ways where public dollars have been used to support that work. But it should be noted that our housing commissioner, Jennifer Hall, said that some institutions, some social service agencies do not approach the housing first, do not use the method of housing first. They actually require you to be clean before being housed. Being clean is a condition for housing. And that's different from how we actually house folks in our community in our Section 8 housing. In our public housing, we house people first in order for them to, to find, to get well.
So um, I understand the, the ambition to help people who need addiction services, but it is on all of us to understand how that works in the city, in this county, and how that funding is appropriated with oversight and not on the fly at the table. It is being done. It's being done now, and there will be an update at the next city council meeting on how that money has been distributed. I kind of wanted to. I kind of wanted to tie two interesting things together because I had a moment of dissonance just now. I was thinking about what you were saying about um, the transparency thing in regards to okay, if the police get this dashboard, is it going to is this information going to be publicly available to everyone? Because the feeling that we have as people who live in this community in which the standards are currently what they are, the gut feeling we have is no, because we don't trust the police to do that without being forced to do so. And I think that gut feeling is kind of what gets overlooked or missed sometimes when we have conversations about whether or not the police have enough resources, whether or not we're doing enough to support officers, because the job of the police is really, really hard. And I do empathize with the jobs of officers because you can't have a bad day. If you have a bad day, someone dies, and then their day is worse than yours, and no one's going to feel bad for you. And I, that's a really hard position to be in if that's what you, your reality is every single day. But when we have conversations about transparency and how we make policing better, and, and we try to talk about how difficult it is to be an officer in the same conversation, it often comes across as really tone deaf because the reason that their job, one of the large reasons that their job is so hard is because people don't trust them. But the reason people don't trust them isn't because people don't want to be trusting. We're trusting with our teachers, we're trusting with our nurses, we're mostly trusting with our doctors. It's because they feel like they don't have a reason to trust the police because the police have done so many things to lose that trust in the first place. And I think this conversation about things like the dashboard is like really good proof of that. If the police can do wonderful things with more data. I want to feel like if the police get this dashboard without us even having to see it, they'd make great use of it, improve their policies, and do a better job for our community. But because of their track record and the things that they've done, when they ask for resources, my first thought isn't, oh great, we're gonna have better cops. It's, well, there goes more taxpayer money that we could have spent on social services that would have actually helped somebody. And I, so I just think that's a really, really important thing to remember. It's wonderful to advocate for the police because we, we do need them. We, we do depend on them. But it's a really, really bad feeling when you have to recognize that you are depending on people who you don't really feel like you can trust. Thank you. Hi, uh, my name is Zachary Story, and I just, um, my eyes were really opened up to policing in this uh, city when I, I was briefly homeless um, the winter of uh, 2019. And um, 
So, uh, yeah, first of all, I, I want to say um, I hope that we can get a new uh, liaison to ICPOC after the election because this, to hear Councilmember Ramlawi say the police need more money for technology and need more sworn officers is not someone that I want to be serving on the police uh, oversight commission. Um, but about what I witnessed of some of the sheer uselessness uh, AAPD is engaged in, um, just heavily policing um, homelessness in this community. Uh, I would go to the Delanis Center for meals and uh, every single day it seemed like at least once a day they would show up to churches that would uh, uh, give free breakfasts and stuff like that so in the places that people who are criminalized for not having housing go for help they are targeted and policed and developed and have just long rap sheets and and then we get the police department having events saying, oh, we'll help you expunge your record. You know, it's, they're the ones that, the, the, that gave people these records on BS anyways. So um, other ideas I'm, I have, uh, and something that I'm curious about the police is what kind of weapons do they have stockpiled? Do they have chemical weapons? Do they, you know, how much money is spent on that kind of stuff, on, you know, militarized weaponry, basically. So, and maybe they don't need to buy as much of that stuff. Thank you. We got a question once from someone about what resources are available for people who feel like they've been traumatized by police. And that's a really interesting way to think about spending money, right? Um, and, and so I think, I think the devil is in the details, and I think we have to ask really critical questions about um, what happens with money. And I think where there is a lack of trust, transparency really, really helps with that. When you get to be more transparent, then people feel like you, they know what you're doing, and everybody gets more comfortable. And so... We know that transparency is good for the community, but it's also good for the police department. It really is. And so we certainly continue to push in that way. Um, we, ex we certainly expect to make change in that way, and we expect more information to become available more and more until we are at a place where we can have at least as much information about policing as we do water quality. You mentioned that this happened after the Gelman Plume and people wanted to trust that their water was safe. Um, I think after the death of Oral Rosser, people really wanted to trust that policing would work in the way in which they, they, they hoped it would. It's a lot harder to change policing than it is to change um, water chemistry, but um, you know, this is equally important. And so I hope that we, we certainly get there um, as well. I apologize for the back and forth. Um, the reason why we have the reporting on water quality is because of the federal and state mandates that require us to report out on the water quality and the contaminants in it. We do, I think, 100,000 tests a year in the water department. 
And so uh, to build on that, I, 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 I would say that uh, when you're asking and when we're asking for these things, these things need to be federally and state mandated that would require local police departments to report out the data that's being asked for and should be required. But the reason why we have such good data in the water department, and, and <laughs> I don't know what percentage to apply that to, is because it's federally and, 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 and state mandated. So uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, a lot, of these, a lot of these things that we're asking for are not. And so if we had, you know, hopefully the Biden administration and, and Governor Whitmer, with the help of Dana Nessel, can get the reform that we need at the federal and state levels so that these local municipalities are, are in unison and uniform and get out the, this data in a way that is coherent and consistent and we're not all working in silos and every community and every police department has got different standards and different ways of reporting out and we can have something that we all understand no matter what community we are in that we are all getting the fair and consistent information and I think that would be helpful once we get those standards across the board. Tomorrow, our president is set to sign an executive order in support of police accountability. That's tomorrow afternoon on the second anniversary of George Floyd's death. I took the liberty to take a look at what this executive order would do. That would include actions, uh, mandating national standards for accreditation, a national database of officers with substantiated complaints and disciplinary records, including those fired for misconduct, an updated use of force policies, a sweeping reform bill that failed Congress. This, this will be in place of a reform bill that failed in Congress last year. So let's all, I hope, I hope we can take that time at 4 o'clock tomorrow and watch that signing happen. It's, it's two years too late. Yes. Um, George Floyd's family is scheduled to be with President Biden as he signs that legislation. Um, and we know that, you know, should that be signed, it will take some time to be implemented. But we also know that council has some control over what Ann Arbor police do and don't do. And that even when, um, you know, other municipalities may or may not do what they may, we know that council has some ability to tell the police department, for example, or our city attorneys, or our city administrator um, have the ability to say, hey, we want traffic stop data to be transparent. Hey, we want your crime data to be on a dashboard. We want these data to be accessible to the public. We want it to be kept this current. We want it to be this accurate, which is critically important. There needs to be some checks and balances. How do you determine that what's on the dashboard is actually correct? We got many versions of traffic stop data before we were convinced that it was actually accurate. And the police department worked with us on that. Um, and, and they were making a good faith effort, but it took quite a while to get accurate traffic stop data. And so um, federal mandate, state mandate or not, we know that Ann Arbor can do um, more than what is expected in another community, for example. Um, <clears throat> um, I mentioned community partners at the beginning, and I wanted to talk about um, just something to look forward to in the fall. There is a project called Reclaim 
and it's reclaiming the Washtenaw County Courthouse. And when I first heard about it, I thought, oh my gosh, there's gonna be a sit-in, I'm gonna have to sleep in the, the courthouse, but no. It is going to be reclaimed with art. It is going to be reclaimed with sculpture. It is going to be reclaimed with paintings, with children reading stories. It is going to be reclaimed by, um, with people meeting in the courthouse and having choreography and dance in the courthouse, in some of the courtrooms and in the hallways and in many of the spaces. And so I, um, I encourage you to think about that. This is happening, as you might imagine, with the full cooperation of the, the, the courts and they are actually excited about it. Um, we hope that our commission will be able to participate in that as well, perhaps hold a public meeting there, um, perhaps. Um, there will be projections of laws, lots of things happening, and so please look out for that in the next, um, in the next couple of months. It should be up in September and October. Are there any other questions, comments, or thoughts before we adjourn? Um, so I've heard comments about having citizens contact elected officials. I have contacted every elected official that represents me in any capacity. The most common response I get is no response. You said contact the Attorney General of the State of Michigan. I contacted her and she said that uh, Michigan law does not require the Attorney General to respond to citizens, only elected officials. So there's, there's really no point of contacting them. I contacted the governor. I'm limited to 2,000 spaces and 2,000 characters, including spaces. And I contact them about the lack of response from elected officials. And their response says that I need to contact my elected officials. So it's kind of hard to actually for you to tell us to contact elected officials when we just get ghosted. You know, like I tried to, I tried to have a meeting with the city administrator, and I was told I need to speak with the city administrator in order to make an appointment with the city administrator in order to speak with the city administrator. So I mean, what's the point of telling us to contact elected officials when they don't respond? Thank you. We do have an elected city official, though. Thank you. Thanks very much. I'm afraid I have an 810 Zoom, so I have to, I have to jet. Um, there's lots of things to say, of course. Uh, but I would just say simply this. I'd like to thank folks on the commission so much uh, for the work that you're doing in this important endeavor. I'd like to thank folks here uh, who've come out to speak today and who uh, communicate to us all the time and to whom uh, we do wish to seek to engage and do respond about uh, these incredibly important issues. Policing in Ann Arbor is one of our basic services and we need to do it right and it needs to be done right all the time. It needs to be done uh, with professionalism, efficiency, uh, and, uh, and consistent and ever-present and, uh, and unrelenting courtesy. There are things that we, uh, we do well, there are things that we can do better, and it is, uh, it is our job uh, my job to work uh, with uh, with commission staff, members of the public, to achieve those goals. Um, I am particularly excited about the unarmed response opportunity that we have. Uh, you know, folks call 911 for all sorts of different reasons, not all of which are emergencies, uh, and it is proper and best and most uh, supportive of public safety to get experts to the scene who are designed for the scene, who are treated, uh, pardon me, who are educated in a way that is uh, is proper for the task. 
uh, and that will be a messy experience getting there, uh, but it is a, an absolutely necessary one. Uh, lots, of other, lots of other things to talk about, but, um, but you know, there's lots of time to talk about it too, even though it is a matter of urgency. We'll do it again next month. All right, thank you all. Thank you. And my apologies for hitting the road, I do have an A10. We're supposed to adjourn at 8, so that's okay. Is there a motion to adjourn? No, oh, I'm sorry, prior to that. We need to approve the minutes from our uh, last meeting. Is there a motion to approve the minutes from the April meeting? Motion to approve the minutes from the Is there a second? I second. All in favor of approving those minutes? Aye. Say aye. There's also another matter on the uh, that we need to tackle this month. Um, one second. Uh, yes, I, um, Madam Chair, I, I do have a motion. Uh, I understand that we are technically supposed to change officers or uh, vote, uh, right, vote on new officers for the coming uh, session uh, by this summer. I would move, because of extenuating circumstances existing with some of our members, uh, some of the commissioners, I would move that we put off the approval of an election of new, uh, well, the chair, vice chair, is that all? Yeah, chair and vice chair until the fall, and that we, by, by October, have our new officers in place, if there are to be new officers. Is that, <laughs> is that, is that, is, is there a second? Oh, oh no. is there a second? I second. Because you will have new officers. <laughs> I have been chair long enough. Um, is all in favor of having a vote for officers in, by October? Aye. Aye. Any opposed? The motion carries now. Motion to adjourn. Make motion to adjourn our May meeting. Is there a second to adjourn? Uh, second, however, just to clarify my motion, that they be in place by the September meeting, uh, by the October meeting, not October 1st, but just to, to clarify. So if nobody has an objection to that sort of clarification. Understood. I second the motion to adjourn. All in favor of adjournment? Aye. Any opposed? Thank you. We are adjourned. Thank you all for coming out this afternoon.